You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey everybody, I'm David Bloom, your host for Bloom in Tech. Welcome back to another episode as we mine the rubble of the collision of tech, media, and entertainment for golden nuggets of wisdom and insight that we can profitably use as we try to understand this crazy time. Lately, I've been uh, doing a lot of conversations with some interesting folks as part of the Let's Do Lunch, that's D-E-W, the acronym for Digital Entertainment World, uh, conference uh, series run by people I'm friends with. They have an upcoming game conference, but uh, they're doing a daily Zoom webinar, and I've been part of several of those. One recently was with Dan Weinstein, the co-founder of Studio 71, one of the OG online video companies out there. It's been kind of fun over the years to watch them. I think they've been out there since 2007 as a spinoff from a music manager's uh, operation. And they've evolved. They became part of ProSieben, the giant German broadcaster. They both manage about 600 clients and create video now for all kinds of uh, partners, from traditional cable TV channels to the standard online suspects that you would expect. One of the things that they've done that I think was really smart in recent years was to diversify a bit into the business of publishing games, both electronic and tabletop. They had what looked like another surefire hit coming out this past week, created by two of the biggest names in the geek pantheon, and then the pandemic happened. For Half-Truth, the trivia board game created by Ken Jennings and Richard Garfield, the strictures of lockdown sidelined key parts of its marketing plan and target audience. Now the game faces a wholly more complicated prospect in the months ahead, though I'm thinking that they're going to continue with their efforts to do games, but in this new world, we'll see how it evolves. Later in the show, I'll play back my conversation with Dan Weinstein, the CEO of Studio 71. Studio 71 got into the game business originally with mobile games tied to Guava Juice, the kid-friendly Filipino influencer who's one of the most prominent of the company's management clients. As the initiative gained momentum under executive Javon Frazier, who is a friend, a delightful stand-up guy, and a frequent part of panels I've moderated over the last few years, Studio 71 began reaching beyond its creator stable to other kinds of game-worthy, pre-marketed opportunities. A board game built around the video game series, The Binding of Isaac, became a hit, Weinstein told me. Since then, the focus has been on creating games built around any well-known brand, whether that's a client like Guava Juice, a celebrity, or an existing property like Isaac that cross-pollinates from other media. To further reduce its risk, Studio 71 also uses Kickstarter campaigns. I love this approach. It's really something that's become key for a lot of companies that are leveraging Kickstarter, Indiegogo, other kinds of uh, crowdfunding and crowd support um, projects to get things up and going. They can prospect for new opportunities by seeing who cares enough to invest in supporting them. And these campaigns are more than just fundraisers. They test whether an audience is willing to invest in a new product. And then they'll use that knowledge to gather a group of ambassadors who have a literal sense of ownership in the resulting product. And that enhances their marketing reach, all while generating startup capital and pre-sales to get the product out the door. So when it came time to back Half-Truth, 
It seemed like a foolproof proposition for Studio 71. After all, the game was developed by two nerd world deities, Jeopardy's greatest of all time, Jennings, uh, the long-running game show's number one all-time winner, and Richard Garfield, a legendary game designer best known for mega-hit Magic the Gathering, which is one of the most popular tabletop games of all time. Jennings, unsurprisingly, is a hardcore trivia geek who's authored several books on the subject. He could provide lots of question material for the game, and Garfield, meanwhile, could ensure balanced gameplay that gives an accessible enjoyable experience, even for people who aren't trivia royalty. The game's design, in fact, is carefully modulated to allow people who aren't hardcore trivia buffs to compete relatively well against those who are, and to do it in an easy-to-learn, quick-to-play format. Each card features a trivia question with six possible answers, half of which are correct. Each player places chits on one to three answers that they believe are correct before the card is turned over. Uh, There are bonus points for getting more than one answer correct, but if any of a player's chosen answers, remember you can choose one, two, or three answers, is wrong, then you get nothing. That adds a really useful layer of risk versus reward that can pay off for a cautious and moderately knowledgeable player. After three rounds, the player who has the most points wins. They did a Kickstarter campaign in August that attracted about $327,000 from nearly 8,900 backers which provided plenty of reason for optimism last fall going into getting the game created. It hit its initial goal just three hours after the launch, and that's a base you can build on. For a lot of people, including all those Kickstarter backers, Half-Truth will still scratch an itch for low-key entertainment that very much still needs scratching here in the middle of the pandemic. In fact, Jennings joked to me, he said, really the number one thing helping the game is that a lot of people were going to go off the edge if they had to do one more jigsaw puzzle. That's probably true for a lot of folks. There's only so many pieces you can put in place before you need something else to exercise the brain. I talked to Jennings and Garfield early in the pandemic, and they just seemed to be relieved to get the project shipped to backers and to have it about to reach a broader audience. Jennings is a very droll guy, by the way. He's quite amusing. I would love to play the tape of our interview, but it got sort of chewed up in a really terrible connection. Jennings called it a peanut butter and chocolate moment between him and Garfield, and a lot of fun. The game went to Kickstarter backers a a few weeks ago with a small pack of bonus question cards and debuted this week in retail stores. But that's where the challenge starts to arrive, Weinstein acknowledged. Part of it is just getting stuff printed and made. Most of that work gets done in China, and China had the uh, coronavirus first and quite large and shut down all of its operations, so for weeks they weren't able to get stuff out. The company did manage to procure, however, and ship enough copies of Half-Truth to satisfy all its backers from Kickstarter and to stock up with Amazon. But other parts of the distribution plan are in tatters. The big box chains such as Target and Walmart are busy stocking their shelves with toilet paper, food, and other staples. Adding a new game to their offerings is pretty low on the priority list. And the situation is even more challenging for many of the specialty game shops that long have been an oasis of community and new game discovery for tabletop fans. Many of those shops have been forced to close or dramatically curtail operations, especially the kinds of communal game nights that bring in lots of potential buyers looking for new titles to try out. That traffic may eventually return, probably in spots and spurts, but it won't be a ripe selling opportunity that it would have been a few months ago. And there's another challenge. Yes, if you happen to live in a household with two or three or five or six adults who remember key portions of the past 20 or 30 years, 
the game's going to work very well for you. It's perfect for those game night gatherings that were a standard part of many millennial soirees. But if you're living alone, as many are, game nights are still a ways off. And if you're cooped in a household with two or three children under the age of 12, this is no shoots and ladders. As even Garfield and Jennings acknowledged, this game in its initial version really won't work for the little ones. The questions cover a wide array of topics, from pop culture to sports to history and beyond, and don't require particularly deep knowledge for an average and thoughtful player to be regularly competitive. But the half-truth target audience is clearly the adults who might otherwise be playing Cards Against Humanity or Exploding Kittens. Garfield, who has twins under the age of three, can't even play with his own kids, so he's acutely aware of the top expansion priorities, should they get the chance to make half-truth more whole. First of all, they come with 500 questions, plus those bonus packs for the Kickstarter backers. Those do get exhausted. They're fun, they're well-designed, I think they're really terrific, but 500 questions, eventually you reach the end of that. So one addition would be more cards. But more importantly, they may do specialty sets, one in particular aimed at children. And that would be next if they get the chance. Now, bookstores, another possible sales venue, are reopening here in California, which has been uh, slower than many states in jumping back on the everything's just fine train. As lockdowns are slowly being lifted and people consider venturing into each other's homes, there may be more opportunities for game nights. In fact, I think game nights in your friend's house are going to start up sooner by far than movie theaters, sports stadiums, or major concert venues. So in that respect, it might be an opportunity just waiting to happen for a game like Half-Truth. Even more promising is the potential for a Half-Truth TV game show. Now that sounds quite interesting, right? You could imagine a guy like Jennings, who's made millions of dollars off of Jeopardy! and Garfield working with, uh, say, Sony or somebody like that. And that's exactly what's going on. It could be a low-cost, high-visibility home run for some outlet out there. They're all looking for more programming, and this is one you can do in a fairly low-key way that uh, could be pandemic-appropriate, as it were. But the pandemic's still out there. There's a looming recession. We could get a writer's strike still, or something else could provide another black swan moment. Still, it marks another step forward in Studio 71's evolution. The company's developing a board game based on the Umbrella Academy. The hit comic book series by Gerard Way, the lead singer of My Chemical Romance, who became a really very successful comic book creator as well. And Gabriel Ba, the artist, that in turn has become a hit on Netflix and has a second season uh, on order. We'll know when it shows up soon enough, I suppose. As to predict uh, half-truth prospects, Weinstein could only say, we don't know. That's probably something that we can say about a lot of things these days. All that said, if you like trivia, if you're looking for a game that might be able to fill some of these still-in-lockdown moments, uh, Half-Truth is definitely worth checking out. If you have the right configuration of your household or the requisite optimism that it's all going to be better soon, I do recommend checking it out. It's worthwhile, and I think Jennings and Garfield did a pretty good little piece of work here. Anyway... Stay tuned. I'm going to be uh, talking with uh, Dan Weinstein, the CEO and co-founder of Studio 71, about the history and future of that video OG production and management company and where they're going and where they're headed and lots of other stuff. We had a really great conversation on a lot of topics and uh, definitely think you'll enjoy the conversation. So hang on.
Hey, everybody. It's David Bloom. I am so glad to be back with you guys here at DMW's uh, Let's Do Lunch. I have a, a cool guest today, one bearded fellow named Dan Weinstein. Uh, he's considerably more hirsute than his, uh, his promo photos and publicity shots. I guess that's called Life at Home. That's right. In the quarantine. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Dan, I guess the, the best place to start, uh, you guys have been around a, a very long time. For those who aren't aware, you started in 2007 as a spinoff of a music management company, and now you do a whole lot of other stuff, but you guys are OG, despite your youthful demeanor. Yes. Uh, you guys are OG in the digital video space. Real quickly, just sketch out the, the sort of places where you guys have stuff and what's happening, if we can, about what, what, what the pandemic's doing to each of those sectors of your business. Yeah, I think it's what the well, the second part is pretty simple, but I'll go through sort of wh what we are today. Um, and you're right, we've taken a couple of pivots along the way, started as a traditional talent management business, pivoted into sort of a digital management type business, and then ultimately into sort of what we are now, which is one of the largest uh, producers and distributors of premium short form or social video content. Um, across multiple platforms and at a level of scale that's really meaningful to advertisers and, and, and creators. So we do about, I'd say, approaching 11 billion monthly views at this point on YouTube alone, not to mention uh, what we're doing on the other platforms, Snapchat, TikTok, Facebook, everywhere you consume social video. Um, and the interesting thing is we're living through a moment where there's a, a pretty... Uh, uh, there's a dichotomy that's really interesting, which is in, in our particular business, unlike some of the more traditional businesses or the live events businesses, consumption is going through the roof, as you would assume, right? People are stuck at home and they're consuming a lot of content on a lot of different platforms a lot of the time. We're seeing sort of 30, 40, in some cases, 60% increases in, in viewership, uh, depending on sort of the platform, which is great. That's, you know, we've, that's something that we want and the creators want. Bring it on, um, right? It's like, right, uh, exactly. Words, right? Well, you know, not so fast, right? The advertising, you know, A, hasn't quite caught up or B, in a lot of different cases, is decreasing as advertisers are sort of in a wait and see moment and don't really know what's going to happen when they're ready to spend. You know, if a, if a car company has booked a big, um, you know, campaign with us, for example, and they, you know, they call us up on Tuesday and say, Hey, guess what? Nobody's really buying cars right now. We're going to, we're going to pause this spend and, and see where we go. Not that there aren't some advertisers uh, spending, um, but even if the interesting thing that we talked about yesterday, David, is, is even if advertising remains stable, right, let's just use Google as an example, AdSense being the main product, because consumption is so far up, you know, 30, 40%, the same amount of available ad impressions has to go feed a lot more mouths. And so your right. general sort of RPM, CPM uh, can tend to go down and go down quite substantively, which can be a, a challenge. So that's something we're trying to work our way through. So what you're really saying is there's a cloud in every silver lining is yes. really what I'm hearing. And, yeah. and I appreciate that sort of optimistic take on a, a really a world changing uh, event. You talked about the advertising side. Uh, can you quantify what it's meant for you guys or 
it's only been really a month since we've locked down, a month and a few days since we've sort of begun the lockdown. Can you quantify in any way what that's meant for how you operate or how you, as you look forward, trying to figure out some way to plan? Uh, what, what are you doing with your ad team? Yeah, well, you know, so there's, it's an interesting question, right? So there's a couple of things. One, one of the most challenging things that we do, because, you know, especially on the advertising side of the business, you know, we forecast, you know, way ahead. What does Q3 look like? We're, we're already into Q4 or whatever the case might be. And that visibility has become, you know, extremely limited, if not, you know, there at all. And so that, that's sort of hard. You can't yeah, use that word. It's just, it's to use, there's no visibility, period. No visibility. I mean, so forecasting. Santa Monica, Santa Monica beaches at, on uh, June 1st, you know, it, right. it's all fogged in. So exactly, you got to exactly right. So that's, that's a big challenge that we'd have to try to sort of navigate that we're in sort of, um, you know, you know, blocking and tackling mode. Let's make sure everything's stable. Let's make sure that the advertisers who have been with us for a long time, we know what's coming down the pipeline and, and sort of the blocking and tackling and everything. Um, and then there's a little bit of trying to get creative. You know, we, we sort of, you know, challenge the sales organization outside of the, here's what we have to do that's right in front of us right now to make sure that we're, we're okay. But how do we get creative in our packaging and look for opportunities uh, that may present themselves that wouldn't have before. Are there new advertisers that are advertising? Is are people increasing their spend? You know, spend home fitness, DIY, kids stuff for parents. Like, wh where can we be deploying without being a little overly aggressive in in doing so at the expense of sort of the, the nuts and bolts of what needs to get done? Um, but it, it's a you know, I'm, I wouldn't. I'm not going to lie. It's a pretty substantive issue that we're dealing with in terms of you know, global CPMs or RPMs coming down. I mean, if you if you kind of do the math, and this is, this is hypothetical math, but if you were doing $1.50 or $2 on, a, you know, 10 billion views a month and just all of the stuff combined, that CPM goes down to $1.50 or $1.25. Think about that in terms of a creator. Think about that in terms and extrapolate that exponentially for a business like ours. That's a pretty significant uh, drop in revenue that you don't have a lot of control over. Right, that's a huge bite. I noticed uh, Mark Patterson, who has joined us in the past, and, and welcome, Mark, has put a question in the chat as opposed to the Q&A. I will scold him publicly in front of everybody. Please put your questions in Q&A because I'm old and slow, and unlike all those spectacularly talented Twitch live streamers in the Facebook live streamers that I talked, with, talked about last week with Phil Ranta, uh, I can't see the questions and the chat and listen to Dan's really smart stuff and actually sound like I know what I'm talking about. So please help me and put them over there. there. There you go, Mark, that's very helpful. Everybody's seeing a pinch. You guys are adapting. Uh, I think the term you used yesterday with me was triage. Uh, there in the MASH unit, uh, who's getting taken care of? Who's, who's taken off for you? How, where, where, does the, where do the resources go now? It's a good question. We, we, again, there's a lot of the blocking and tackling. There's a lot of making sure creators are stable and they have the tools to continue to do what they do at home, which is a change for a lot of creators that are not used to doing that. So we're, we're trying to deploy a lot of our resources in that, in that regard. Um, but some other pieces of the business have, have actually, um, and surprisingly, taken off a little bit. So we have a deal. It actually sort of predated the, the pandemic a little bit, but with Instagram TV, IGTV, where we were, you know, commissioned to produce 
a slate of a, a ton of influencer-driven social video programs that we're going to live on that throughout the course of the year. And we've been able to successfully pivot that from sort of on-location physical production to creating a team that can work with creators virtually to help mm-hmm. create that that content. And so the budgets are still there for that. That's an interesting approach, though. So what you've got is this SWAT team right, that you're bringing into each of your creators as they stay in their house instead of going out with a bunch of folks, that production team has been virtualized for them, basically, right? And they're yeah. doing the front end and the back end to help out the creator to pump this stuff out, right? Yep, yep. And uh, and Instagram is commissioning that content. So that there's a revenue stream for the creator. There's a revenue stream for us. We're providing value to the creator in the sense that, look, they're stuck at home. There's only so much they can do. Like, what are the new formats? How can we do this? I don't know how to edit that kind of a thing. Can you guys help edit that kind of a thing? I don't know. You know. So we're, we're doing a lot of really interesting things there. And then the other thing that's been really interesting, although it is also contingent on advertising, is our distribution you know, off YouTube to OTT platforms and streaming platforms and all the other places where people are consuming content has gone up 60%. I think we streamed sixty percent. Wow. We, we streamed almost two million hours of our repurposed content on Amazon Prime Video just in March. So that's found um, money, basically. So you're taking stuff you already had sitting on the shelf, the digital yeah. shelf there, yeah. and you what recut it and put a new yeah. name on. It? I mean, I yeah, I, mean, talk- I think it's a, it's a little more sophisticated than that, but it, it's okay. taking our library content of thousands and thousands of hours of video. Um, it's helping the creator extract it. It's it's editing it for the platform, right? Making it making it specific to Snapchat or Amazon. Cutting off right. end cards, and then you know having the expertise to optimize it and the channels to put it through on those ecosystems, and then be able to drive revenue against it. So it's it's incremental and found revenue to the creators. It's a new distribution pipeline for us, and that business and those platforms are starving for content, right? Right, right. Yeah, they're, they're, the problem that they're facing is that people have sort of plundered their libraries, right? And they're like, they give me something I can work with, yeah. right? I mean, so you've yeah. got, well, we've got this stuff. Maybe it hasn't been looked at in some ways. We yeah. can give it a fresh look and do some things with it. Um, is there an example? I mean, when we talk about that repurposed content, like what, what kinds of shows are we talking about that you're able to send over to Roku, the, I guess the Roku channel or to Amazon? What, what's, what's going over there? What kind of stuff? Yeah, it's, look, it's, 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 it's not that dissimilar. It's not that dissimilar from, you know, what you would find in our, in our YouTube network, right? So, obvi- you, know, n- you know, not so surprisingly, uh, kids' content is performing extraordinarily well on right. other platforms right ott devices so we'll package up a bundle of our existing kids content whether it's family vloggers or animation or whatever it is and we'll send it to the kids channels at at, at roku and at amazon or whatever for incremental you know just volume programming well two million hours is a pretty good volume in a month i would it seems like to me i mean i'm not stevie so maybe they would go ah but you know, it feels like, and if that's really mostly repackaging with some spin and some, you know, there's some you know, shining it up a little bit, 
that's that's actually a chance to make back some of the money you're losing on on your advertising, right? Exactly. Even even though it is subject to other platforms, advertising it is it is more revenue coming in. Right. And then what what that has the potential to lead to, and there there's some conversations that I can't quite get into because no deals have been done at this point in time. But a lot of these platforms again need original programming. They don't have the capacity to produce it anymore, or at a cost basis that makes sense for them. So they could, uh, you know, come to an entity like ours and say, "Can you deliver us X amount of hours of original programming that you can produce virtually at a cost basis that makes sense for you for our new streaming platform that doesn't have enough content, or we've gone through our our, our library, or whatever the case may be?" And that could be pretty interesting too. We talked about the SWAT team for the IGTV projects that you guys are doing. How big is that virtualized production team? About 10, 15 people? What are we talking about here? Yeah, give or take. And and it's it's not all, like some of it is more ma- like, you know, um, project management. So it doesn't necessarily need to be production. So there's other bodies that can take on right. some of the work. Right. But yeah, we've got virtual showrunners. We've got editing teams. We've got graphical teams. We've got the distribution technology where we're sending the content out pretty seamlessly it's it's we've been able to sort of repurpose our existing ecosystem in a way that makes sense it's interesting to me that you do that because it feels like that this is a sustainable approach that will get you part way down the road as we make our way through this thing and hopefully out of it but uh, we may be stuck with this for some time to come so you need to have something like this to get through right so but it's also a transformation of the traditional influencer as everything, you know, they talk about the multi-hyphenate in the influencer world, the influencer is everything. They're the star and they're the co-star and they're the writer and the producer and the director and the editor and the cinematographer and the key grip and you know, on and on and on. But you're actually providing resources around them so that they are more like a more like traditional Hollywood a little bit, right? Because traditional Hollywood has the star who plugs in and then everybody else does stuff and they just deliver it really well. Yeah, and look, that, that's sort of what we set up to do from the beginning. Again, I don't think any of this this was necessarily a reimagining of the business based on the pandemic. This was sort of stuff that's been built and been put into place that is starting to take off and, and, and has an accelerant behind it because of the pandemic to some degree. But the idea was always how can we provide an infrastructure in, in sort of two regards. One, to the creator to help them grow their business, grow their audience, grow their content output, and grow their their monetization, frankly. And then how can we have enough scale to be valuable to advertisers and distribution platforms? Because Amazon Prime, for example, or Roku or whomever, they don't want to do 10,000 deals with individual creators for 20 videos apiece, right? They want bulk volume. They want technology built to service the relationship, you know, and they want, and the same thing for advertisers. They don't want to do, you know, especially on the media side, forget the brand and content side for a second. They don't want to do one-off $5,000 media buys against three channels or 10, you know, they, they, they want real reach, real volume and sort of, forgive the, the phrase, but one-stop shopping. That's something that we're able to provide given our level of scale. And that, that's sort of the realization of that of that business model. Yeah, it's a really interesting approach though to be able to aggregate. In some ways, it just feels like 10 years later on the MCN promise, you know, back in 2011, I guess, or 2012 in that time frame, 
the MCNs became a thing with YouTube and evolved into a lot of other stuff. But this is actually where it starts to feel like a really substantive evolution beyond what Hollywood does, but still connecting back to what Hollywood is at a time when Hollywood's being, I think, turned upside down. What are the sectors that are particularly where you said kids stuff, family-oriented things, obviously not travel, none of that stuff, <laughs> food and cooking, but really it's cooking at home. It's not It's not going to the fancy restaurants. Maybe it's the home improvement guys. The hot ones, I guess, is always hot, but it's not quite as fun when you can't like give them the ghost pepper sauce in person, I would guess. Yeah. I mean, look, we, we see TikTok exploding for us. Um, there's sort of a built-in virality to that with the dances and the challenges and all that sort of stuff that people can sort of do on their own. So we, we see a lot of growth there. You know, in the, in the OTT side, it's really been kids and family and DIY and wholesome entertainment because kids are stuck at home and parents have nothing to do with them after they're done their four hours of school or what have you. And so there's, there's a need for that. Um, educational stuff is doing pretty okay. Honestly, we've seen an increase in, in the majority of our stuff, even on the, just the personality side. You still, you still, you know, if you were a fan of, you know, X personality, you're still a fan of that person and you're going through this with them and you're still connecting with them. So it's, it's really not, there hasn't been that much of a, a variance between what, what has been working for us or not. I really look forward to someday getting a personality so I can be a famous online star like all your people. But you got a, your stable of folks was always a little smaller than most of your competition over the last 10 years. About how many influencers do you guys have a business relationship with now? So, you know, we're a global business now, so I'll just speak for the sort of the U.S. There's Germany and the U.K. and, and Italy, uh, which has been hit particularly hard. But in the U.S., I think we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 creators, you know, they represent about 1,100 channels, give or take. And we provide various different services for them. Not, not, not every relationship with every talent is the same. Some people need this, some people need that, some people need it all, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, we, we always, we you know, sort of thought from the beginning, and I think it probably came from our, our Hollywood management uh, days, that you, know, you can't scale what is ostensibly a service business to such an extent without starting to compromise on the level of service. And so we always wanted to have enough scale to be dangerous, but also be able to execute on behalf of our, 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 our clients. Well, there were a couple of tidbits there I don't want to lose track of. So first of all, uh, 1,100 channels across 11 billion views suggests that most of your people are pretty heavy hitters online. They're not a lot of micro-influencers in the stable here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, second of all, you mentioned you're mostly focused on the U.S. influencers. You all are owned by ProSieben? Yeah, we're, we're owned by ProSieben, but we also have a Studio 71 in Germany that works in local. You, you took that name, right? Because it was Studio 71 over there. Correct. You all collective digital or CDS or whatever. Collective yeah. digital community or what was it? Collective again? digital studio, yeah. Yeah, it was back, way back in the day. Yeah. And you all took Studio 71 when, when ProSieben bought in, right? Correct. Yeah. And so they have their own group of German and Italian and, and English influencers that they deal with there and you all do some I know in the past you guys have done like some collaborations and yeah it's it's pretty localized though you know the the German language content you know doesn't really travel outside of Germany very much and so that's why I sort of separated for the purposes of the conversation yeah so my friend Kimberly King Burns who is on and is used to international collaboration and stuff given her uh, Bahamian background she asks is your content tailored to the 48 contigu- contiguous states 
as an island girl, she may be a little sensitive about those, uh, forgetting about Hawaii or Puerto Rico. But are you seeing the pandemic as an opportunity to diversify your audience and library? Is it a chance to reach out in any way? Or does that make sense for your brand and your creatives? Look, the majority of the content is, you know, we don't we don't produce, right? We, we're, we're a distributor and a sales agent and all of that, you know, sort of stuff. So I, I think it's an opportunity for creators to create more content, to create informative, educational, uplifting, you know, social good content. But that's not, it's not really something that we, that we think about in terms of the Studio 71 brand, which is more of a B2B brand than it is a consumer brand. Now, you guys have had your hands in some other interesting initiatives, I think. And, and unfortunately, I guess one of them is, is going to be challenged by the, the transformation here. I've known Javon Frazier, who's been on panels with me two or three times. He was working with you guys, and now he's, I guess, got his own company. And he's contracted with you. And you guys have had some really in, interesting initiatives with games. You did stuff with Guava Juice. I think that was one of your first ones, creating uh, merchandise and games that were tied to your influencers. You've had some nice success. We talked about, what was it, Isaac? The Binding of Isaac. The Binding of Isaac, that's right. The Binding of Isaac, which sold and did very well. And you have a new game. I'm going to give you a shameless plug here. Yeah, it's a trivia game, Half Truth, from uh, Ken Jennings, who won the Jeopardy champion. Oh, yeah, the Jeopardy goat, Ken Jennings, and uh, Richard uh, Garfield, who basically created uh, Magic the Gathering. And yep. for Wizards of the Coast. I mean, there's these are two of the geek uber gods, and That's they right. create half truth, and it's coming out very soon. And I've talked to them, yeah, yeah, and I've talked to them a couple of times, and they're a lot of fun to talk to. Unfortunately, when I talked with them, our, our our connection was terrible, and they're really funny guys. And so Ken Jennings would make some, you know, very witty thing, and I would hear like half of it, or I would say something that was like at least half witty. Uh, it's normally the level I reach. And they would be tick, tick, tick. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. So they would hear it and kind of laugh. It was very difficult. So, But they're, they're really sharp guys. They made this trivia game, and it's going to have some prospects here. But that game and other board games that are coming out have some challenges that you all are dealing with. And I hadn't thought about this. It's like, well, everybody's home. It should seem like you should be able to do this stuff. But you're saying it's not as simple as you think. Yeah, there's a couple of things to unpack, and, and, and some of it's particular to us, and some is, is, is about the board games in general. But, you know, as one would imagine, manufacturing, shipping, and distribution from China has been challenging, especially for a little guy like us. And they make all the game pieces. So. And they make, they make all the game stuff, right? That's how, we, that's how we make all the game stuff. You know, our model's been interesting. You know, we marry a game IP with a distribution channel, you know, call it an influencer. Some of it's, you know, sort of like a YouTube star like Guava Juice, and some of it's influencers like Richard Garfield and Ken Jennings, and some of it's IP, like uh, we have the rights for the Umbrella Academy on Netflix to do a board game around that. But our model is tended to be, you know, let's, let's utilize a platform like Kickstarter, excuse me, they can um, help drive or, or, or kickstart, frankly, the marketing of the game and help raise the initial financing so uh, we're not taking an exorbitant amount of risk on the, on the initial development of the game. But the problem is that's a, hey, let's invest in that now and maybe in eight months or a year, I'll get a game. And I don't think a lot of people are doing that right now. I think they're, 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 they, want, they, want, they need some instant gratification if they're buying a game. At, at all, right? And then the retail stores, which are, you know, a big driver of some of this, in particular for like Half Truth and the Binding of Isaac, which is in Target and Walmart, their buyers are not 
that focused on board games at the moment. They're they're trying to keep Purell and toilet paper and all that sort of stuff, right. especially stuff that hasn't been in the store and not necessarily working that they're speculating, you know, eight months from now, right? Right, so, right. So I think that that business has been a little bit challenging. It's it's a great niche for us. I don't think we want to um, abandon the business. You know, we're getting quite quite savvy at it, but it's it's certainly slowed or paused. You know, given all, given everything that's going on in the world at the moment. And one of the things that you and I talked about was that um, even uh, half truth is a uh, half truth is a really clever game, and I like what they're doing with it. As they freely admitted when I talked to them, one of the challenges is that it's sort of grown-up focused. And that's great when you can get a group of grown-ups in the room to do a fun trivia game. It's less great when the people you can get in the room are your three kids under the age of 10 who don't really do yeah. trivia yet, or not the trivia that Ken Jennings right. and Richard Garfield might do typically. So right. they were thinking, well, we need to do a new batch of like family kid trivia and stuff right? yeah that's right so so you know we don't know but that would that would be an assumption of you know is there an audience for it at the moment is it something that's going to break through the clutter is or is it limited fortunately we we got wave one of half truth out and delivered into retail and to amazon and, and wherever it needed to be pre the world shutting down so we'll at least have the, the first run of it um, and then we'll see what what happens I mean, yeah, I think eventually it'll be okay, but you guys are hoping to get things that have a little bit sh shorter turnaround uh, to, to profitability uh, or break yeah. even for sure. At this point, let's see, we've got a few questions. I, I want to tell Dustin to please put his question in the Q&A so I can keep track of it and everybody else who has questions. So we've got time for a few more. Mark Patterson, both a uh, associate of mine, uh, as I've said before, a dodgy one, but uh, therefore uh, more interesting than most, is asking if you find your new content becoming verticalized or focused on particular genres as you adapt, where are you steering your stuff? I mean, you had 16 shows or whatever it was for IGTV. I'm sure some of that stuff is like, yeah, maybe less of that and more of this. So what did you end up tweaking out of all Yeah, that? I think, I, you know, I don't know that we necessarily tweaked anything. I think it's, it's um, you know, we're, we're, we're definitely a multi-platform producer and distributor. So what's right for the platform, we'll tend to do. So the content for TikTok and Instagram and Snapchat is all verticalized. Even when we repurpose it from YouTube, we reconstitute it to be vertical in nature so that it works on that platform. Mm -hmm. Um and I think, you know, one of the things that we're advising our creators to do is, you know, get a little creative and less cumbersome in this period of time, right? They don't have access to equipment that they don't necessarily have readily available. They don't have all the studio space that they might have had otherwise and, and since they're stuck at their home. So be a little nimble, be a little flexible, create content that's easy to produce. that tends to be a little bit more vertical and, and less edited in nature. Um, and we're finding it to do do great, and I, and I think people are you know are okay with that. They're supportive of these creators continuing to live through this challenging time, yeah. and they'll continue to support them. I mean, it's not a time to worry a whole lot about production values because you just aren't going to happen at the same level. But you can do yeah. pretty well. I mean, I I just got a cool thing from Black Magic Design uh, uh, last week. This thing again, I'm going to cause problems here with my my virtual background, but it's like a little digital switcher. It's like 600 bucks that they they just came out with. It's really cool for video. Yeah, and you can do four four feeds and two audio, and that's like amazing. And then you put another little camera in, you can live stream and all that. 
that's an idea. That's an example of the kind of really sophisticated, fairly inexpensive technology you can get now that do yeah. all kinds of stuff. And I think all, all that stuff is great. And we're going to see, you know, an explosion in that kind of stuff that helps people create content. But I definitely think that the more important thing is the substance versus the quality, the production quality of, of the content these days, right? What are we saying? How are we telling stories? How are we engaging with people? What's our messaging? All of that stuff is going to resonate a lot more than the production quality. I mean, look at what John Krasinski is doing with some good news. I don't yes. know if anybody's caught that, but it's well-produced. It's certainly not a Fox television show, right? It's it's very homegrown. He's doing it from his house. They're doing the <laughs> right, whole thing. Right. And it's fantastic. It is the right message at the right time with the right guy. And and, and that's, that's really more important than anything else. Yeah, I have to say, though, who knew that Jack Ryan could be such a warm <laughs> Right. I just figured he was going to pull out a AK-47 and start spraying the room virtually or something. But then, of course, it went back to, oh, yeah, no, it's the guy from the office. It's his artist. Yeah. But they did a great, they actually did a great one. It was a, the talk of some of the Zoom rooms that I hang out in. That The one they did the second episode, the Zoom surprise for this little nine-year-old girl, Aubrey, who's a big fan. It turns out not so much of John Krasinski, but of his wife, Emily Blunt, who was in the Mary Poppins movie, played Mary Poppins. And so he, he was talking with her about that and, and how she really liked that. And they were going to go see Hamilton with her mom, but she couldn't go see it because pandemic. And he said, first of all, we're going to send you to go see it whenever we can have Hamilton again. But second of all, I've got some friends who want to say something to you. And Lin-Manuel Miranda and the cast yeah. got on. They all sang together. Yeah, it's really great. Uh, sang a song from one of her, her supposed favorites, and watching her face melt out of joy and shock and surprise was just wonderful delightful yeah, and look and, and and by the way on the other side of that coin i tend to watch a lot of the or i've been looking at the stuff that's like on quibi for example and i i don't quite understand it i mean it's really slick and shiny and the and the technology is really cool and and all yeah. that but like mm -hmm. i don't know that i want that on my phone or need it on my phone and i don't know that it's what i want to watch right now right it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question i mean if you're not scoring one of those nice deals from Jeffrey and Meg, I think you're a little bit less excited about Quibi than in, in Hollywood. It doesn't share and that, like, that doesn't make sense. You, you've built yeah. your whole business on creating video that people want to share and making it possible for them to share it and talk about it and engage with it and follow people directly. And this is like the antithesis of that, you know, how we get to consume media now. I mean, that's just not what we do. So. John Burke, whom I don't know, but asked an interesting question, says, have you seen any ups or down swings in branded entertainment? And I think that's a really good question. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think that, look, I think just as a rule of thumb, advertise, at least for us, right? So take everything that I'm saying as a sum of my own experiences in, in, in our business, not necessarily in the world. It's, you know, it's down. We're, we're definitely executing a fair amount of brand deals. There is an uptick in certain categories where, you know, again, like fit, home fitness stuff, the fitness influencers are doing a ton of business around that type of content. Sure. Um, I don't think it's enough the, you know, the increase in spend and or the new advertisers aren't enough to counteract all the people that are not spending or are spending less or pausing right. spends. Right. But we're definitely seeing a bit of a downturn in branding content. Are the advertisers you speak with, because I know you have to go into your weekly sales meeting or your daily sales meeting or whatever often you have to do it and say, buck up kids, it's going to get better. 
as a good leader. But uh, what are you hearing from the, the advertisers themselves? Are they saying, look, we don't have any visibility. We're going to hold off for now. Or we're really getting pounded and we can't do anything. But come back to us in two yeah, months. Look, I, what- I don't think it's all fire and brimstone, right? I do Look, I think there's a couple of categories that are going to be significantly hit and hit hard for a long period of time. And that, that will be challenging. But advertising in general, you know, I, I think will rebound you know, over time. I, when that will be, I don't know. I, I think we'd like to predict an uptick in Q4, especially as we start to hopefully come out of this pandemic and, and reopen the economy and we all have, you know, some semblance of, of trust to go out and be out and be consumers and all of that sort of stuff. And I don't think it's going anywhere. And I think that consumption is going through the roof. I think, you know, the convergence of, you know, TV, you know, money's coming out of TV and going into digital. I don't think that's going to change. That's going to go through the roof. And so I do think we come back and hopefully we're better off for it. And we got to, you know, weather the storm to a certain extent. I'm certainly hopeful it'll come back soon because all the people I know that are in that business are facing some challenges. But I also think maybe it's worth, you know, noting something that we're seeing is, Perhaps the way that advertising gets bought and sold will change, you know. In what way? So I'm, I'm curious about that. How would, well, how would change? we're not going to have an upfront, right? So that's well, yeah. Well, well, if you look at all a lot of the big media com- holding companies, right? Your WPPs, your Publis, you know, they're scrambling. They're a lot of brands are taking their own business back in house. They were already doing that. They're already doing that. They're building their own digital teams and their and, and how to do that. And I think the traditional holding company agency model may be a bit antiquated and start to, you know, show its flaws in certain ways. And, and I think that'll, that'll change uh, over time. And I don't know that that will quite rebound the way that it was, you know, even this past year or the year before that. But the idea of there being money to advertise products and services and that continuing to grow will happen and that will come back. Where yeah. it comes from and how it's how it's spent and separated I may actually change. Mike Aben asks, uh, how do you monitor new and upcoming platforms and what would cause you to advise your talent to get on a new platform? Do you think limitations of form factor like video or picture only means there's a space for other influencers who may not be good in front of a camera? It's, I mean, like, basically my only hope is uh, that this podcast thing takes off, but more generally, what is it that you guys, when you look out there, some of these platforms like house parties kind of getting warm now? I don't know how that doesn't get mass, but I mean, there are other. <laughs> the younger generations and the influencers tend to have a, a better pulse on it than, than I probably do or that we right. do. They, right. they tend to, to discover it faster or, you know, first. But I would say that in terms of, you know, how we would look at it or how we would advise talent, you know, I think that just because you're able to build an audience in one form factor on one particular platform doesn't mean that necessarily translates to another. In particular, one of the places where we found that the most significant is taking a you know, uh, a YouTuber or, or someone that's, that's really good at short form comedic kind of stuff and trying to throw them into a podcast, thinking that that would translate their enormous audience over here to a format that was non-visual and an hour long and whatever the case may be. And that just did not work the way that we thought it was going to work. And, and I think that's an allegory for, or analogous to a lot of different things, you know, a TikTok star may not be right for, you know, X platform. That's something to think about and figure out where your skill set lies and why people are consuming your content. 
that that sounds like the voice of very hard won experience. But uh, <laughs> it, it does suggest that uh, yes, there are some opportunities for newcomers in new platforms. They have to figure out what it is, and maybe it isn't just shoveling your YouTube star onto TikTok. And um, uh, and sometimes it makes sense, though. I mean, you know, on the other side of that coin, and in the same avenue, you know, we're, we're working with a, a big tech blogger named Marcus Brownlee, who's got a very substantive audience on YouTube. And we built a podcast with him called Waveform. It's our biggest performing podcast. It's absolutely crushing it. And it's because people want to tune in and listen to what he has to say about a particular piece of technology or what's going on in the world for an extended period of time outside of what he does on YouTube. So that, you know, sort of made sense. Yeah. Paul Milbach asked a really, I think, pretty question for this time. Aside from influencers, does Studio 71 take submissions from outside production and development partners to commission or distribute content? Yeah, yes and no. We have a team that is out Which there. Which one is it? <laughs> right, right. Um, well, I'll, I'll, so let me, I'll be clear, right? So we, we're not, here's what we're not doing. We, we, we used to, and we're definitely not in the business anymore of sort of deficit financing content that hasn't been commissioned. You know, we, in the past, we made a handful of movies or we made a handful of bets on television shows or whatever, where we would, we would develop deficit finance and, and distribute, you know, kind of like we did with Video Game High School or this most recent movie that we just produced called Plus One that we did with right. Ben Stiller. That business model is kind of over for us. There's not a whole lot of buyers for that anymore after the fact. And so we're only going to produce things that we get commissioned by other platforms to produce for them, whether it be Netflix or Instagram or whatever the case may be. And I think, yeah, depending on where it comes from, we're interested in IP or ideas that we could go sell to those other platforms. But, you know, so that's kind of the answer to that question. Yeah, yeah. I My mean, non-answer. Well, I, I, I get it because I think that, that as Hollywood goes through this wrenching change, part of that is this conversation about deficit financing and pilot seasons and upfront advertising sales uh, showcases and all of that stuff in this moment is... I think in question, right? Never mind what's going to happen to the movie business or whatever. But I, I do think it's a fascinating transformation. Have you rented, I'm just going to go through these real quick because we only got a few minutes left and I want to make sure that we get some of this in. Have you rented any of the features out there? The, you know, the bunch of, speaking of transforming movie business, people are taking the films that were going to be going out in theaters, either they're putting off the release date six months, a year or more or they're putting it directly onto Amazon and Apple and all those things and selling it at like 20 bucks a pop to Reddit. And asking, um, have you done that yet? Uh, about a third say no. Nearly a third say none of them are interesting to me, which is a whole different issue for Hollywood in general. And uh, about one in six, 17% say yes, they've done it. Another 13%, so about, about a third say either they've done it or they plan to soon. So that's an interesting thing. What type of streaming, streaming content are you watching the most these days? Scripted episodic programs, two thirds of you are doing that. It certainly would be good if we could, as Kimberly King Burns pointed out in her Q&As, uh, put uh, multiple choice up here, not just multiple choice, but multiple answers are possible in a single one. But I don't know how sophisticated Zoom's survey features are quite yet. So we'll investigate that. And Laura, the queen, will come back and make it all better for all of us. Feature length shows about one in, one in seven of you, 15%. Documentaries, only 8%. It's interesting what people are, are watching, but mostly it's the scripted episodic stuff. Is that what you're seeing with your... You guys are really not scripted or more closer to reality stuff as most of your yeah. own. 
program. So yeah. I was looking for looking for opinions about Quibi because we shared a couple here. Three percent, a rousing three percent said that they have they love it and are really enjoying what they've seen. Another twelve percent, one in eight, say that some good stuff and it's a promising start. They launched with about one point seven million downloads of their app in the first week. They painted that as pretty good. It doesn't look quite as good compared to Disney Plus, but that's sort of not a fair comparison given that Disney Plus was Disney with all of the Disney promotion and the fact that they were practically giving it away at the D23 and all that. So, uh, but uh, almost two thirds of you haven't tried it. And another 23% say they haven't found much that they like. And that's a little bit more worrisome because word of mouth in a place that doesn't uh, actually encourage sharing is going to kill them if it's like, I don't see anything I like. So we'll see how that works out for them. On the streaming service you've watched the most during the pandemic, does it still offer a lot of content that you want to watch? Actually, about half of you say there's still lots of stuff to go through. So I guess that's good news, but they're going to be having to come to Dan sooner or later, right? They're going to need that's you guys. Right. Roku knows they got to come to daddy because they're going to run right. out of something soon. Less than a third of you say there's still some stuff to watch, but the cupboard's getting there. I think that's going to be an issue by end of June, certainly, but maybe the end of end of, uh, end of May. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out when we won't be able to have a lot of conversation or a lot of production, except for the kinds of things that you guys are doing. Right, Dan? Five, I think this is one of Dan's questions. While we've been under quarantine, which platform are you finding the most enjoyment from? Traditional TV? Only about 8%. That is not where people are going for comfort. And established streaming, 62%. Maybe not surprising given this group and given who they've come to listen to. Almost two-thirds of you are going to streaming for most of your programming fun. A zero for Quibi. 15% for YouTube. And not much for anybody else worth noting. Instagram, 8%. During quarantine, what's your go-to streaming platform for entertainment? Netflix, again, almost two-thirds, 62%. Hulu, about 8%. Disney Plus, a tiny amount. And Amazon Prime is 13%, so about one in eight. So it's it's the usual suspects. The new guys aren't making a big dent, and I think that's an interesting thing to note. Sorry about that abrupt conversation, but that was pretty much all the good stuff from my conversation with Dan Weinstein, the head of Studio 71, the big distribution and production company, uh, getting its hands into all kinds of other interesting areas here in the middle of the pandemic and trying to figure out what its business looks like as everything changes around us and them. Hope you enjoyed it. And once again, I want you to try Half Truth. I think you'll enjoy it if you are situated, such as... Uh, if you actually have things like other humans who are of adult or semi-adult age around who might enjoy it, think about Half-Truth as a game you might want to uh, try out. Uh, it's worth checking out, I think. Uh, more generally, if you enjoyed the podcast, I hope you did. Please rate, review, share, and subscribe. You can reach me at David Bloom on Twitter or David L. Bloom on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. You can also leave an audio comment on Anchor.fm, which is where I host and syndicate my content. And they share it out across 10 major platforms, and I believe that audio commenting feature is available throughout most of the platforms. And uh, if you give me something, let me know what you're doing, what you think about the game opportunity, if you're thinking about how to create content and get it out there these days in the middle of all the challenges with production and lockdowns and all that and where things going, I'd love to hear from you. 
Uh, you also can become a subscriber and supporter of this show through Anchor.fm. They make that easy as well, so please check that out if you'd like to keep the wheels on this media machine rolling along. In the meantime, please take care of yourself. Be careful out there. Uh, we are reopening. That doesn't mean it's safe. Go with the best science that we have. It's all we have in the middle of the implacable realities of the epidemic. So please take care of yourselves. Know I'm thinking of you and want you all in one piece. And I'll be back soon. This is David Bloom for Bloom in Tech, over and out. You've been listening to Bloom in Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone. Thank you.